Today we're pleased to welcome Jim Bradburn to Valley Views. Jim is a retired architect who came to the Valley in 2004, although his visits preceded that by uh, many years. After graduating from uh, Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute, affectionately known as RPI, in Troy, New York, he began his career in Connecticut before finding his way to Denver. His first project here was to oversee the Helen Bonfi Theater that was part of the Denver Center for the Performing Arts. In Denver, he formed Fentress Bradburn Architects, which eventually became the largest firm of its kind in Denver, employing over a hundred people. Among the many significant projects in his portfolio is the striking Jefferson Terminal at DIA. It's this project upon which we'll focus today. Jim, welcome to the program. Thank you, Gary. I know you've worked on a lot of projects over the years. Can you paint us a picture of one of your favorite projects uh, aside from Denver International Airport? Well, probably one of my favorites is up in Jackson, Wyoming, and it's the uh, National Wildlife Museum just north of town. We have um, Sarah Woods has actually uh, shown her work there many times. It's a small museum. It's in the side of a hill. It's made to look like an outcropping of rock, which is right above it. There's the natural ones, and uh, it's a pretty successful museum, and it was just a lot of fun to build. I was just talking with our friend Peggy the other day. I mentioned I was going to be in Jackson Hole in February, and she mm-hmm. said, oh, you got to go to... Jim's museum up there. She said the building's like better than the art. <laughs> well, I don't know about that, but uh, it is a fun building. You know, to me, architecture is very complex. It's a dance between form and function, between art and technology. What got you interested in this uh, in the first place? Uh, well, I knew I wanted to be an architect when I was four years old. I'm probably one of the luckiest people in the world because all along in my career, that's what I wanted to do. Uh, I did get sidelined a little bit when Sputnik went up in um, 57 um, by the science side of architecture. But by the time I was a freshman at RPI, I decided, you know, I really want to be an architect, not an engineer. And as a consequence, uh, fortunately, RPI had a really good architectural school, but it's also embedded in an engineering school. So it gave me a great education in terms of balancing both sides, as you said, of architecture, which is a sort of the melding of engineering, science, and art together. So what elements of the profession appeal to you most? Probably most is construction, because I love to build things. Uh, Followed very closely by the science and the engineering of architecture. But I got to say, uh, the, the, the the design side, the creativity side, the part that comes, well, there's creativity in all parts, actually. But the part that people think of when they say creativity is that art side, coming up with a form that satisfies a particular solution to a problem that a client has, whether it be an airport, a museum, a, an office building, a house, whatever it is, but it's always solving a problem that a particular client has in an architectural three, three-dimensional form. So were there any... Uh, historical architects whose work you admired, and perhaps could you describe one of their projects for for our listening audience? Well, I have to admit, I really don't like architects, because uh, <laughs> most of them I find to be egotistical and somewhat, uh, how shall I say, boring. A but, present uh, company accepted, uh, uh, of Well, of course, but until you ask my wife, and then you might find a different <laughs> answer. But nonetheless... There are some that I've never met that I think their work is really cool. Uh, Frank Lloyd Wright uh, stepped out and did some things that were phenomenal in his time. Uh, some of his buildings obviously didn't perform very well, so the engineering side is not great. But the artistic and just the change in direction was pretty terrific. Uh, some of you may not know Errol Saarinen, but the St. Louis Arch and the TWA Terminal 
in uh, New York City, the uh, John Deere building, which was the first use of weathering steel. Um, these were some of the projects that, uh, that I admired most because it was a combining of technology with a wonderful sense of form. Um, and then Mies van der Rohe was probably another hero of mine just because of the way he used technology to build high-rise office buildings primarily in, in uh, Chicago that uh, really stepped out and just changed the whole industry. So if I'd met the people, probably wouldn't have liked them, but um, or may not have liked them, I should say. But nonetheless, uh, what they did was pretty phenomenal for me. Chicago is actually an amazing town. I lived there for a couple of years, and they have architectural tours. Yes, they do. And uh, as you mentioned, Mies and uh, Frank Lloyd Wright's studio right. was there, right. uh, Philip Johnson, some, right. some of those. Uh, you mentioned Frank Lloyd Wright. Uh, I've been to those to the studio there in Chicago and out, in, right. out to Scottsdale right. to sort of his western. Sally West. His western uh, summer, summer place, I guess. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, I remember the... Going to the Marin County Civic Center in in California, right. which was designed by him. And if you went there when it was raining, there were buckets sitting <laughs> around because the thing leaked. But it was a be- it's a beautiful building. But uh, Ed, you you just alluded to that well, aspect. I, I've got to tell you, there's that's the part of me that uh, that's the engineering side of me that says you know that's unacceptable, <laughs> totally unacceptable that that anything should leak. I mean that's just part of good architecture that you build a building or you design a building. You don't actually build it. You design a building that uh, does not uh, leak, doesn't fall apart, doesn't erode, doesn't, you know, create problems for an owner. But at the same time, um, it needs to be creative. And and being able to combine both of those aspects of architecture is a real trick. Exactly. So it's well known around town that you were the architect for the Denver International Airport. Uh, How does one get that gig? Uh, It's a convoluted story, but I'll try and make it quick. The city and county of Denver was basically forced to build DIA by the FAA because the Stapleton Airport was too close to Denver and too close to the mountains. And if Denver was ever to become a hub, which it had already started to be by the airlines, it was causing such backups because of weather and other problems that the FAA says, if you guys want to be the airport, you need to move it away from the mountains and away from the town. And it's kind of like the old days when we built a spur from Denver up to, I say we, City Fathers long before my time. When the Transcontinental Railroad went across, they built a spur up to it to make sure that Denver wasn't forgotten. Well, they saw the same opportunity here or same problem here that the FAA said, we're not going to make you a hub unless you build a new airport. So they were forced to build a new airport. They decided, in their infinite wisdom, to go to an international uh, architect, or so they thought, to design the airport. It's that old saying that the profit is never known in their own town. So they chose a firm that had never done an airport before, which, but, but the guy was a good friend of the mayor. So August Perez and Associates designed the airport. What they were supposed to do, let me back up and say there are sort of aspects of designing. There's schematic design, which is the early scheme of what you're going to do. You develop a particular scheme into a design development set of documents. Then you, from those design developments, you produce the construction documents from which the con- contractor builds the facility. Everybody knows those as the blueprints, if you will. And then finally, the construction phase. Perez and Associates was supposed to go through the design development phase. Then we we were hired to spread the work around, to come on and take the design and finish the construction documents and follow it through construction. So we were hired in, uh, in basically in May of 89 to do that. And when we arrived, we found out that Perez had utterly failed to produce anything. 
There was a group called the Blue Ribbon Committee, which was to look after the design, and they hated this thing that Perez had come up with. We were to see whether or not it was under or over budget. It was $78 million over budget. And finally, we were to determine from the documents whether or not it could be built in the time frame. There's no way that it could ever be built in the time frame. And so the city fired Perez and hired and told us to come up with a new design. And I said, give me two weeks. <laughs> and now when I think back about it, it was, you know, could have used a little more time. But actually I had the idea in my head because we didn't want to wholesale just get rid of everything that Perez had done. But basically they'd set up a, a grid, if you will, where the main terminal was had a span of 150 feet and a length of 900 feet. To span 150 feet, the cheapest or most inexpensive way of getting across there is cable. And so it just dawned on me, if we went across that in cable, that would be something that would not only solve the expense problem, but it would also solve the speed of construction problem. So based on that, we developed a tensile membrane structure, which is emulated to, to follow the teepees on the high plains. It was, to me, an acknowledgment to the indigenous architecture that was there that preceded us before we got there. And as a consequence, uh, created the, the image that you all see today. People call it the mountains. That's fine. But really, it's an encampment of Indian teepees on the high plains of the, of the Colorado Plateau. When we presented that, or when I actually presented that to the engineering-based uh, uh, city guide, Bill Smith, who's incidentally his wife lives here in Westcliff, that I used all the arguments that had anything to do with engineering, maintenance, speed of construction, cost, you know, everything you can think of. And by the time we were done saying all that stuff, um, Bill had had a big smile on his face, and he was looking into this model that we'd made out of lycra, because we didn't even know how to make a model of a tensile membrane structure. But uh, that won the day. That's perfect. That's how it came That's about. So when the airport was completed, what was the reaction of the public, the officials, <laughs> uh, and the your architecture peers? Perez wrote a letter saying, how could we do that? That was nice. <laughs> Um, there was a fellow that, that wrote uh, editorials for the Denver Post, uh, Gene Amel, who hated everything about DIA, let alone our design. But, and I used to have people that would come up to me and say, Jim, did you think about the snow? Or did you think about the rain? Or did you think about the wind? And so, and don't you know when you open the door, the whole thing will collapse. Um, but um, generally, the Blue Ribbon Committee was static. They, they loved it. And the city council loved it. Most of the architectural firms, I think, were jealous in town, and they loved it. Um, but um, really what it did was solve some real serious problems that the city and county of Denver had mm -hmm. in terms of getting that airport built on time and within budget. And you had, uh, as you describe it, per certain restrictions in terms of what had been sort of the space Yeah, we didn't available. have time within those two weeks to just throw out the entire... The, the, the airport wasn't designed by Perez. It was actually designed by a consortium of very large airport planners. And the area given to the terminal was then determined as the center mm -hmm. of this thing. And, of course, it was sort of boxed in, if you will. And so they had started with a plan that said you come in on the right side, you come in the left side by traffic, and you could come in and feed into the main terminal that way.
We didn't want to change all that. So that left the column system, that sort of stuff in place. Mm. But what Perez had come up with is a sort of 19th century train station look. And all that steel up in the air in a seismic zone was just, <laughs> just didn't make any sense. Plus, architecturally, it looked terrible. What was it doing there in a 21st century airport? Um, so that's why the Blue Ribbon Committee didn't like it. But why expense-wise, it was way over budget. And just the time of construction would have been phenomenal to build it. So as you look back on the airport of what are you most proud I guess I'm most proud that it actually got built uh, um, you know because I had I had this I was going back to some of these people that were critics I kept a file called the horrors file of all these people that had written to me saying from organic chemists that told me that the fabric roof's going to fall apart within a, within a week and a half of being in the sun two people said this is just crazy it's going to fall down in the wind but um, that aside uh, the fact that we'd actually got it built, that it actually looks the way it is, that it's now rated as one of the top 10 airports for pe- creature comfort and beauty in the country by people that have nothing to do with us or architects. There are people that have that plan, you know, travel magazines and, and the like. I mean, that to me is really phenomenal. Yeah. And the fact that it's still there and it's doing just fine. Yeah, and it's a very striking design that people yeah. rem- remember. Except for that ugly air, uh, <laughs> airport hotel in front of it. <laughs> Who let that in there? <laughs> so what are the most challenging aspects of a project like this that a neophyte like me would not <laughs> pay a second notice to? Well, I guess you have to be young and stupid and and and, and uh, somewhat naive to propose something like this that this changing. Because you just do it because, it's one, it's the right thing to do. It was the right solution. It's like Victor Hugo, paraphrasing him, it's the, don't ever estimate, underestimate the power of the right idea. And that's kind of how I went about this. I, once I came with this idea that fabric and, and cable would be the right solution, I was so convinced about it that you just started pushing ahead. And so the fact that we got that done and got it built and it's what it is, pretty nice but there are a lot of other things there the, the the floor that you walk around that granite that's pressure impregnated granite the first time ever done in the world it's only three eighths of an inch thick and yet it has more strength than any piece of granite that's four or five inches thick so it's pretty cool it's there's a lot of things other than just that that went into the technology so for me as an architect again it goes back to rpi engineering science chemistry all applied to figure out a solution that then architecturally made a lot of sense and made a lot of beauty. Thinking of airports, uh, if you there's a commercial for Korean Air, <laughs> which has uh, shows the airport there, and I know you were involved with uh, yes. the Incheon Airport in Seoul. It's a very striking design, but I'm interested more in the different cultural aspects of working in a in a country like that. It must have been just completely different from from working in Denver. Um, quite different. Um, I'd never worked in Asia before, but we were invited to participate in an international design competition for the Seoul Airport based on our work at DIA. It was 10 architectural firms together with their group of our, our associates in Korea, and we won. And based on the design, it was the most Korean-like. What our my firm liked to do is do uh, architecture that reflected the place in which it existed. So like DIA reflected the teepees of the high plains, Seoul tried to reflect the temples and, and the cultural patterns that, that exist in Korea. 
But the people are quite different, and the approach to a problem is quite different than the West. Um, I described it this way. Think of the Asian approach as a school of fish, and all of us in the West look at it and figure, who's leading this mess? And it keeps going, but it changes direction and goes all over the place. And from the Koreans or the Asians' sense of view, they look back at us, and it's like a bowl of popcorn that hasn't fired yet. But any <laughs> second now, one will shoot off and go in one direction, another one will shoot off and go in another direction, and they go... What is the matter with you people? <laughs> so the two systems had to coexist, and it was difficult at times. But I had to, uh, I had to learn not to expect uh, everything to be the way it was in the West. It, it was, it was a very educational process for me and my my group. That's a great picture you've painted. We're <laughs> we're running short of time. When I think of my favorite architectural cities, cities that you can go to and really be inspired, I think of Chicago. Sure, probably number one, but also. Sure. Barcelona with Gaudi's uh, uh, sort of organic, uh, whimsical stuff. And uh, Prague is amazingly complex and uh, with all sorts of different things. What, what hmm. if you were telling somebody to go to a city and study architecture, what, what, <laughs> what ones come to, know, come, come to mind? Uh, Troy, New York, you know, that's, that's, <laughs> that's where you need to go. Home of RPI. Home of RPI. Uh, you know, every city, every major city, has some, and I don't have a favorite city, Gary, but every major city has some unique aspect about it that's, um, you know, indigenous or creative or um, unique to that particular city. Peculiar, if you use the word correctly. And I think that all most major American cities fall into that. Certainly the world cities, the European cities, they have a lot more history than we do. But uh, the Asian cities, I mean, Angkor Wat, if you go to Bangkok, if you go to Delhi, I mean, all of them have something that's been around far longer than the United States that offers a particular solution to the human environment. And that's what cities are. They're just solutions to a bunch of people all living real close to each other. Thanks for coming out, Jim. We appreciate it. You bet. We've been talking with uh, Jim Bradburn, retired architect who's been discussing his magnum opus, Denver International Airport.